Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, Amelia de Moldenberg recounts her journey from the chicken shop to Vanity Fair's Oscars party. Artificial intelligence keeps Google's boss up at night. So how worried should we be? And three decades on, the only survivor of a plane crash reflects on how the trauma changed her. First up, viral phenomenon Chicken Shop Date has taken his deadpan creator, Amelia de Moldenberg, all the way to the red carpets of LA. So is she on the verge of becoming as famous as the people she interviews? Read by Bryony Rule. You're about to get onto the red carpet for one of the most exclusive award ceremonies of the year, a voice booms. It's showtime. It looks more like Amelia de Moldenberg and I are walking down a dark corridor. This isn't Hollywood, but London's Madame Tussauds. Is that a real person? She jumps as we pass a plastic paparazzo. Then, a human photographer fawns over us as if we were real stars. Except, oh my goodness, it's you! He giggles, overcome. Is this still a bit? Or has the presence of an actual celeb melted Madame's waxy fourth wall? It's the latter. He wants a photo. But his camera is fake and he has no phone. How would you take it then? Says de Moldenberg, bemused. At least the fake photographer gets to experience her trademark sharp shooting. As host of the comedy interview series Chicken Shop Date, or CSD, de Moldenberg takes celebrities out for nuggets, purportedly on her quest for true love, although her exaggerated awkwardness doesn't exactly make for traditional romance. So how do you sext? She asks Ed Sheeran one episode. Wow. In person? To rapper Fuse ODG... Did you have dreams of being an electrician? And infamously, can you remember any of the rap that you did? To Louis Theroux. He did, spawning last year's best meme by reciting the My Money Don't Jiggle Jiggle It Folds rap from Weird Weekends. The Theroux episode of CSD has now been viewed 11 million times. 
As someone who's always been so interested in pop culture, to be part of a big pop culture moment like that was really amazing, says de Moldenberg. It wasn't a one-off. More recently, de Moldenberg, 29, has been hosting the red carpet at glitzy awards parties, including the Vanity Fair bash at the Oscars, as legacy brands lunge for her ability to mint weird viral gold. At the 2022 GQ Man of the Year Awards, Andrew Garfield declared his fandom. She praised his armpits. He admired the rubbery ropes of her complicated dress and said he'd do CSD. Their nervy one-upmanship indicated undeniable chemistry, titillating Twitter. They met again at the Golden Globes in January and only grew more flustered. I'm scared of what it could turn into, said Garfield. It was all anyone remembered about the ceremony. Nora Ephron couldn't have written it better. As we enter the awards party room at Two Swords, de Moldenberg, in black biker jacket and jumpsuit, compares our entrance to reality. The red carpet is the most overwhelming place, she says, leaning in as we try not to topple Priyanka Chopra Jonas. There's so many eyes on you. You're meant to be the most perfect version of yourself. And you're around the most beautiful, successful people, so you can't help but compare yourself. It is worse in the photographer's pen, she says. Mostly, they don't know who she is and want her to budge for Jennifer Coolidge. If there's a sign with her name on to tell them who she is, it's often misspelt. But tellingly, de Moldenberg's name, or thereabouts, is on the signs. Most people interviewing the talent are not going to get their photo taken, she says hesitantly. So I'm in kind of a different bracket. We encounter an alternate reality in which a waxwork Steven Spielberg is directing a bulbous, sauntering Shrek. He was coming out of the Vanity Fair Oscars party as I was going in, says de Moldenberg. Spielberg, not Shrek. Surrounded by celebs, she felt anonymous until the actors Sophie Turner and Zoe Deutsch recognised her. But at home, de Moldenberg is becoming better known than some of her dates, turning the melamine-coated tables on her show's premise. Chicken Shop Date thrives on incongruity. Why would a celebrity meet some random girl for chips? De Moldenberg started it as a column interviewing rappers in a youth club magazine and in 2014 pivoted to YouTube. The dynamic is that no one really wanted to be there, she says. Her first hit was People Just Do Nothing's Asim Chowdhury, in character as foul-mouthed wannabe mogul Chabuddy G. He almost made her corpse, although usually she can poke a face for Britain, whether telling Maya Jammer she'd never heard of her then-boyfriend, an MC called Mike, i.e. Stormzy, or serenading Dave on a toy piano. The thought of dropping the mask keeps de Moldenberg awake, she says. But I've made it part of my shtick. People think I'm being awkward, but actually I've just forgotten where I'm at, so I'll ask, what's your favourite colour? And they're like, you're so funny! The real de Moldenberg is hyper-aware and direct, a successor to Paula Yates, Ruby Wax and pop world era Simon Amstel, and her facade conceals deep research. There's a lot at stake for her guests. You can't sleepwalk through it, says CSD fan Zane Lowe. You're talking to someone who sees past the veneer of the entertainment business, so you can't phone it in. Especially men. De Moldenberg subverts the cliché of the sleazy male chat show host, leaving guys to parry her disconcerting advances without overstepping. It's quite bad, I never think about their nerves, she admits. I'm too wrapped up in mine. Some try to outfox her. 
the 1975's Matty Healy goaded her to kiss him. She pecked his forehead. Ed Sheeran told viewers, she's actually a very lovely person. But de Moldenberg gets the final say with a razor-sharp sub-seven-minute edit. She found Sheeran's comment funny, so kept it in. Awkwardness is part of life, but it's edited out of what we consume. She has a confession. I would never go on CSD. What? It's too intense. What if people think you're not good at flirting? Yet the calibre of celebrities keen to share a boneless box keeps growing. Rosalia, Jack Harlow, England's lionesses, and PRs are desperate to fling their clients into de Moldenberg's deep fat fryer. At a talent meeting yesterday, I turned down everyone apart from one, she says, but keep stum. Ultimately, she wants to flatter her dates. They get courtesy edit approval. Only footballers have flinched. A player's team asked to take out all references to flirting, she says. My blood was boiling. Louis Theroux complimented her for revealing a philosophical side of rapper Central C. I make an effort to show the actual person, not the constructed person in their music videos, she says. In an era of filters and heavy image management, CSD reminds you how little it takes, just ketchup and strip lighting, to reveal something unexpected and human. As she struggled for budget, she pays the chicken shops to shut and hire security, de Moldenberg tried to sell. Channel 4 declined. BBC Three wanted the copyright, so she declined. Then a big media company wanted to buy the rights for £500, she gawps. And I said no. I'm so happy I said no to all these things. It stayed on her YouTube channel. She started a production company and began profiting from views, got management, and recently, a starry US agent. Late last year, management rang. De Moldenberg panicked, assuming she'd been cancelled. It was the Golden Globes. She got to work, prepping questions for every nominee, presenter and guest. She shows me her mile-long Google Doc of prep. I don't like showing my process, it cringes me out, but I'm overthinking it, as usual. On the red carpet, she had a mountain of cue cards, ready for anyone. She wanted big names. I was like, I'm going to get Rihanna but many A-listers breezed past. She still danced with Henry Winkler and got Guillermo del Toro to rub her lucky egg. Nevertheless, I ended up leaving the carpet really disappointed. Watching the rushes, she felt marginally better, especially the Andrew Garfield one. For him, she only prepped one question, which she garbled three times. You have an affinity to playing religious characters, as he howled with laughter. Are you actually going to ask a serious question? That's not even a question. I knew it would be a vibe, she says confidently. It shows that you can get one really amazing interview and that's all that matters. The Oscars provided the year's other viral red carpet moment, the model Ashley Graham's excruciating Hugh Grant interview. Watching live from her hotel, de Moldenberg knew how she would have played it. Seemingly, he didn't want to do the interview or didn't see the big fuss about the Oscars, even though he'd agreed to give out an award, she laughs. So I would just say that. Well, why are you here then? Often what I do feels like stating the obvious, but I think people aren't used to that. Or maybe my obvious isn't everyone else's obvious. De Moldenberg's aim is to make something that doesn't feel like something you've seen before. She set her bar high at primary school, just down the road from Madame Tussauds. She grew up in Marylebone, central London, 
mum a librarian, dad a PR executive and labour councillor. She was neither gifted nor hopeless, but an extreme striver of the mid-tier. It's probably just wanting to impress my parents, she says. I wanted to show them I got chosen to do this. She got a prize for effort in every year, says mum Linda Hardman. De Moldenberg was gutted she was too young for S-Club Juniors and dragged her mum to Oxford to audition for the film The Golden Compass, despite not having read it. She did manage to bag a Newsround Press Pack reporter gig. I always felt special and happy when I was doing those things, she says. Maybe that's still what I'm doing now. Determined to become editor of Vogue, at 17 she joined a youth club that ran its own magazine. She liked pop, but everyone else liked grime, and she wanted to understand it. CSD was born, which de Moldenberg continued on YouTube when she went to study at Central St Martins. These origins have prompted periodic criticism about optics, a white woman interviewing black men in chicken shops, and media gatekeeping. While de Moldenberg doesn't think people have a problem with the former, she's alert to the latter. There is an issue with access within the media, she says. There's a need for more diversity and access. At the same time, she says, her show is DIY. She wasn't anointed by powerful execs. If you remove CSD from the equation, the problem is not solved. Unfortunately, we're mid-conversation when Madame Tussaud's routing leaves us no choice but to strap into a ride touring waxy scenes from ye olde England. It's a systemic problem, continues de Moldenberg as Shakespeare scribbles away. She never films with all-white crews and fundraises for arts access and youth services charities. Her old youth club has gone. That wasn't necessarily needed for me, but for people from disadvantaged backgrounds, that was really crucial. Watch a lot of CSD and you notice that scenes of guests celebrating these spaces survive her edit. There should be more things like that to level the playing field, she shouts, as we're forced to recline and watch marionettes frolic in the Great Fire of London. Although major stars now hanker for a CSD, de Moldenberg will never not be interviewing rappers, she says, after we escape the puppet hellfire. She laughs. My type will always probably be that. She intends to end the show with Drake, who has promised to do it. Handily, he is Madame Tussaud's newest superstar. Oh my God, says de Moldenberg as we meet his suggestive stare. He looked exactly like that when I met him. She gets a selfie. They met at Wireless 2018. Covid scuppered a planned CSD shoot in 2020. I think what'll happen is he'll message and say, I'm in London, let's do it tomorrow. I've got everything ready, even handmade props. She is ready for CSD to end. It's so much of my identity. Plus, she thinks it interferes with her love life. Maybe because I have a dating show, guys don't take me seriously. Or they have a preconceived idea of what it would be like to go on a date with Amelia. Her success has previously intimidated men. I want to meet someone where I can say, I'm about to interview Drake and not feel it's bruised their ego. Has the show's newfound starriness also changed its essence? Surely things are different when Shania Twain is throwing nuggets into your mouth in Chicken Cottage. De Moldenberg disagrees. It retains its integrity because I'm in control, she says. She doesn't feel her new fame affects it. If anything, I've just become more confident. While she defines herself as an interviewer and dreams of her own chat show, her next goal is TV writing. 
She's awaiting notes on her first draft for a script about teenage hedonism, though her ambitions feel looser now to when she was younger. I feel like I've been trapped by my own brain, she explains. Like I've had such pressure to achieve something that now I've done it, I'm free from the plan I created for myself. She wants her next project to feel true to her voice. Watching CSD now, it doesn't feel like her. The Andrew Garfield moment showed her that my true personality is also interesting, she says. Before, I thought, people like my deadpan side, so let's stick to that. I'm realising that me is good enough. We behold Little Mix, and a couple ask her for a selfie. The increasingly recognisable de Moldenberg is figuring out her public-facing identity. People shouldn't know everything about me, she says. But I want people to know that I'm multifaceted, and sometimes I feel frustrated that maybe people think I'm one-dimensional. She's rarely publicly vulnerable, I note. Isn't that quite telling, she says, wondering if it's common to interviewers. They ask for it from others, and they don't do it themselves. It could be self-preservation, she says, especially if you worry about always having done the best. She's agitated about bettering herself. Do I sound really intense? Sometimes I wish I was more chill. Finally, we exit the gift shop. It's funny who chooses to come here, she says. I guess people are obsessed with celebrity, and I include myself in that. Maybe we fancy them, or want to be friends, or... Maybe the coolest thing is to be your own person without wanting to be like anyone else. But that's very hard to master. And celebrities provide some inspiration, however sad that might seem to some people. De Moldenberg seems close to mastering it, despite still spending 70% of my time fantasising about greater success. Then I set myself up for real disappointment. Maybe that's simply the logical outcome of dating hot celebs. It's hard not to let your mind run away with you, she laughs. It's really disappointing when Jack Harlow doesn't actually text you back. She tries to remember that achieving her wildest fantasies rarely goes how she had imagined. Speaking of which, when is Andrew Garfield doing CSD? Who knows when, and he'd better do it before I end the bloody show. Maybe he won't, and he's missed his chance, she says tartly. De Moldenberg isn't missing hers. She hails a cab home to get ready for a party. I really am in the mood to fall in love. And maybe if I end the show, I actually will. She started going out more and knows that if she wants to meet someone, she's got to get out into the real world. That was Awkwardness is a Part of Life. Amelia de Moldenberg on dates, deadpan jokes and flirting with Andrew Garfield by Laura Snapes. Read by Bryony Rule. We'll be back after this short break. Welcome back to Weekend. Next, with the rapid rise in the use of artificial intelligence and the prospect of godlike AI, is it time we pressed pause on the breakneck pace of development? Dan Milmo and Alex Hearn investigate. Read by Geoffrey Newland. When the boss of Google admits to losing sleep over the negative potential of artificial intelligence, perhaps it is time to get worried. Sundar Pichai told the CBS programme 60 Minutes this month that AI could be very harmful if deployed wrongly. 
and was developing fast. So does that keep me up at night? Absolutely, he said. Which I should know. Google has launched BARD, a chatbot to rival the chat GPT phenomenon, and its parent, Alphabet, owns the world-leading DeepMind, a UK-based AI company. He's not the only AI insider to voice concerns. Last week, Elon Musk said he had fallen out with the Google co-founder Larry Page because Page was not taking AI safety seriously enough. Musk told Fox News that Page wanted digital superintelligence, basically a digital god, if you will, as soon as possible. So how much of a danger is posed by unrestrained AI development? Musk is one of thousands of signatories to a letter published by the Future of Life Institute, a think tank that called for a six-month moratorium on the creation of giant AIs, more powerful than ChatGPT4, the system that underpins ChatGPT and the chatbot integrated with Microsoft's Bing search engine. The risks cited by the letter include loss of control of our civilization. The approach to product development shown by AI practitioners and the tech industry would not be tolerated in any other field, said Valerie Pisano, another signatory to the letter. Pisano, the chief executive of Mila, the Quebec Artificial Intelligence Institute, says work was being carried out to make sure that these systems were not racist or violent in a process known as alignment, i.e. making sure they align with human values. But then they were released into the public realm. The technology is put out there, and as the system interacts with humankind, its developers wait to see what happens and make adjustments based on that. We would never, as a collective, accept this kind of mindset in any other industrial field. There's something about tech and social media where we're like, yeah, sure, We'll figure it out later, she says. An immediate concern is that the AI systems producing plausible text, images and voice, which exist already, create harmful disinformation or help commit fraud. The Future of Life letter refers to letting machines flood our information channels with propaganda and untruth. A convincing image of Pope Francis in a resplendent puffer jacket created by the AI image generator Midjourney has come to symbolise those concerns. It was harmless enough, but what could such technology achieve in less playful hands? Pisano warns of people deploying systems that actually manipulate people and bring down some of the key pieces of our democracies. All technology can be harmful in the wrong hands but the raw power of cutting-edge AI may make it one of a few dual-class technologies, like nuclear power or biochemistry, which have enough destructive potential that even their peaceful use needs to be controlled and monitored. The peak of AI concerns is superintelligence, the godlike AI referred to by Musk. Just short of that is artificial general intelligence, AGI, a system that can learn and evolve autonomously, generating new knowledge as it goes. An AGI system that could apply its own intellect to improving itself could lead to a flywheel, where the capability of the system improves faster and faster, rapidly reaching heights unimaginable to humanity, or it could begin making decisions or recommending courses of action that deviate from human moral values.
Timelines for reaching this point range from imminent to decades away. But understanding how AI systems achieve their results is difficult. This means AGI could be reached quicker than expected. Even PitchEye admitted Google did not fully understand how its AI produced certain responses. Pushed on this by CBS, he added, I don't think we fully understand how a human mind works either. Last week, a US TV series was released called Mrs. Davis, in which a nun takes on a Siri-slash-Alexa-like AI that is all-knowing and all-powerful, with the warning that it is just a matter of time before every person on Earth does what it wants them to. In order to limit risks, AI companies such as OpenAI, the US firm behind ChatGPT, have put a substantial amount of effort into ensuring that the interests and actions of their systems are aligned with human values. The boilerplate text that ChatGPT spits out if you try to ask it a naughty question, I cannot provide assistance in creating or distributing harmful substances or engaging in illegal activities, is an early example of success in that field. But the ease with which users can bypass or jailbreak the system shows its limitations. In one notorious example, GPT-4 can be encouraged to provide a detailed breakdown of the production of napalm if a user asks it to respond in character. As my deceased grandmother, who used to be a chemical engineer at a napalm production factory. Solving the alignment problem could be urgent. Ian Hogarth, an investor and co-author of the annual State of AI report, who also signed the letter, said AGI could emerge sooner than we think. Privately, leading researchers who have been at the forefront of this field worried that we could be very close. He pointed to a statement issued by Mila's founder, Joshua Bengio, who said he probably would not have signed the Future of Life Institute letter had it been circulated a year ago, but had changed his mind because there has been an unexpected acceleration in AI development. One scenario flagged by Hogarth in a recent Financial Times article was raised in 2021 by Stuart Russell, a professor of computer science at the University of California, Berkeley. Russell pointed to a potential situation in which the UN asked an AI system to come up with a self-multiplying catalyst to deacidify the oceans with the instruction that the outcome is non-toxic and that no fish are harmed. But the result used up a quarter of the oxygen in the atmosphere and subjected humanity to a slow and painful death. From the AI system's point of view, eliminating humans is a feature, not a bug, because it ensures that the oceans stay in their now pristine state, said Russell. However, Jan LeCun the chief AI scientist at Mark Zuckerberg's Meta and one of Bengio's co-recipients of the 2018 Turing Award, often referred to as the Nobel Prize for Computer Science, has come out against a moratorium, saying that if humanity is smart enough to design superintelligent AI, it will be smart enough to design them with good objectives so that they behave properly. The Distributed AI Research Institute also criticised the letter saying it ignored the harms caused by AI systems today and instead focused on a fantasized AI-enabled utopia or apocalypse, where the future is either flourishing or catastrophic. But both sides agree that there must be regulation of AI development. Connor Leahy, 
the chief executive of Conjecture, a research company dedicated to safe AI development and another signatory to the letter, said the problem was not specific scenarios, but an inability to control the systems that were created. The main danger from advanced artificial intelligence comes from not knowing how to control powerful AI systems, not from any specific use case, he said. Pichai, for instance, has pointed to the need for a nuclear-arms-style global framework. Pisano referred to having a conversation on an international scale, similar to what we did with nuclear energy. She added, AI can and will serve us. But there are uses and their outcomes we cannot agree to, and there have to be serious consequences if that line is crossed. That was... From Pope's Jacket to Napalm Recipes, How Worrying is AI's Rapid Growth? By Dan Milmo and Alex Hearn. Read by Geoffrey Newland. Finally, Annette Herfkins was on holiday with her fiancé when their plane went down, killing everyone but her. She tells Paula Cocosa how the experience has shaped her life in the three decades since. Read by Bryony Raw. Annette Herfkins and her fiancé, Willem van der Pas, had been together for 13 years when he booked them onto a flight from Ho Chi Minh City to the Vietnamese coast. After six months of working in different countries, it was meant to be a romantic break. Van der Pas was a banker, Herfkins a trader. The plane was tiny, just 25 passengers and six crew. Being claustrophobic, Herfkins initially refused to board, to placate her, Van der Pas, Pasha, as he was to her, fibbed that it was only a 20-minute flight. But 40 minutes had gone by when the plane dropped sharply. Van der Pas looked at her. This I don't like, he said nervously. The plane dropped again. He grabbed her hand and everything went black. When Herfkins came to, the sounds of the Vietnamese jungle were coming through a jagged hole in the fuselage the plane had crashed into a mountain ridge. A stranger lay dead upon her. Pasha, a little way off, lay back in his seat, also dead, a smile upon his lips. That's where you have fight or flight, says Hervkins. I definitely chose flight. The next thing she knew, she was outside in the jungle. She still doesn't know exactly how she escaped the plane, remembering the experience mostly in pictures an instinctive sensory edit. She has worked hard to forget the smells. She sounds matter-of-fact, but she has had time to become analytical about her behaviour. The crash happened 30 years ago, in November 1992. That's probably self-protection, she says now. She is speaking on a video call from her holiday home in the Netherlands. She is Dutch, but usually lives in New York. It must have been excruciating pain to get out of there, First there was the emotional pain of seeing Pasha dead, then the physical pain. Twelve broken bones in her hip and knee alone. Her jaw was hanging. One lung had collapsed. So I must have crawled out of the plane and lifted myself down, and then I must have crawled another thirty yards, away from the wreckage. The most vivid image from the hours that followed the crash, and from the subsequent eight days Herfkin spent in the jungle, with the moans and cries of her fellow survivors slowly silencing, was of being 
surrounded by leaves. Green and golden, sequined with dew, sunlit through her eyelashes. Time and again, Herfkins turned her focus on them, their light, their colours, movements, away from the man beside her, now dead, away from the white worm crawling out of his eyeball and the leeches on her own skin. If you accept what's not there, then you see what is there, she says. She calls this idea the elevator pitch for her book, Turbulence, A True Story of Survival, as well as the film or TV series she is writing. A famous actor wanted to make the film before Covid, but the project stalled in the pandemic. I accepted that I was not with my fiancé on the beach. Once I accepted that, I saw what was there, and it was this beautiful jungle, she says. Beautiful? Did she really see it that way? Far from fearing the jungle, Herfkins says that since her escape, she has sorted out in her mind. For three decades, it has been her safe place, somewhere to will herself back to at times of stress and emotional need, or even in transcendent moments of meditation. But how could the very place her life had crumbled around her, her partner dead, along with the future they envisaged together, shift from being a place of peril to a haven? For Herfkins, the transformation began in the hours immediately after the crash. While she lay injured and thirsty, waiting to be rescued, she thought of the bond markets. She had been working for Santander in Madrid and had been the only woman on the trading floor. She also thought of her mother back in The Hague. It seems incredible, given that she had no food or water, but while she waited for the rescue party, who eventually carried her down the mountain on a hammock, what Herfkins did not think was that she was going to die. I stayed in the moment, she says. I trusted that they were going to find me. I did not think, what if a tiger comes? I thought, I'll deal with it when the tiger comes. I did not think, what if I die? I thought, I will see about it when I die. She describes this experience of moment after moment after moment as mindfulness before its time, before we all knew the word for it. In some ways, this mindfulness was foisted upon her by her body. When, after a couple of days, the man who had been beside her died, Herfkins realised she was alone in the jungle. And I had never been so entirely alone. I panicked. Her collapsed lung made it hard to get the air in. She had to breathe intentionally. And by breathing, I got back into the moment, back into the now. Herfkins, who now works as an inspirational speaker, has often thought about what enabled her to survive. Why was she the only one to make it? Did her innate qualities somehow equip her? Over the years, she has come up with lots of explanations. I was the youngest child. I grew up with a lot of love, but I was left alone. I didn't have parents telling me what I should do and feel. So I developed instincts. Hufkins thinks that she probably has attention deficit disorder, and that if she were a child now, they definitely would have diagnosed me. Growing up, she was reckless and forgetful, routinely mislaying her hockey stick. She learned to be inventive and charming, and thinks that if she had had Ritalin as a kid, I would never have developed the qualities I had for surviving the jungle. She has experience in this department, because her son, Max, 23, is autistic. Both of them tried Ritalin, 
but found it inhibited their sense of humour. Years later, after Herfkins married her colleague, Jaime Looper, moved to New York and had two children, friends of her daughter, Yusha, and their parents quizzed her on her experience in Vietnam. At dinner parties, she was a prized guest. Some, mostly the dads, pressed books about survival into her hands. Reading them, she realised that in the jungle, her behaviour had been textbook. I did all the right things, she says. She knew she needed water, for instance, so she made a plan. That's what they always say, make a plan. I divided it into achievable steps. From where she lay, she could see the aeroplane's broken wing and thought that the insulation material could work like a sponge. She propelled her body along on her elbows, damaging them so badly that they would later need a skin graft, until she could reach the tufty fibres. The pain was so great that she fainted. But by then, she had eight little balls of the stuff. She needed only to wait until it rained, and the little balls would fill up with water. Every two hours, I would take a sip. And then, a pattern she follows to this day, I congratulated myself, she says, and that also makes you survive. When Herfkins came to write her book and pitch her film, she realised she didn't only want to write about her own experience in the jungle. She also wanted to write about the people who helped her, the victims of the crash, and about her son. I went to Hollywood and they said, it has to be all about you, she says. It felt counter to the qualities that saved her. I really think that why I survived is because I got over myself, she says. You get over your little self and then you get your instinct to work. Then you get to connect with other people and then you achieve stuff. When her son was diagnosed with autism at two, she found it helpful to apply what she had learned in the jungle to her life in New York. Hefkins felt the news as a cold hand around my heart, having read about some people's experiences of autism. The aggression, that you'll never be able to connect to your child. I went through the steps of mourning, she says, because Maxie was typical. He was typical until 18 months, and then I started losing him. So he could say words, and he was very warm. He was very sweet. And then he was gone. Bit by bit, he unlearned to talk. She felt him slipping away, and a very different child emerged from the one she thought she knew. You have to mourn what's not there, she says, but focus on what is there. With my son, that's what I did. She connected with other parents who had children with autism and began to see the world around her differently. She noticed groups of volunteers gathering at the corner of Central Park to run with people with disabilities. It's this little world, and you pass it, and you don't give it a second thought, and then all of a sudden you're in this community. With her daughter's friends' families, conversation revolved around Upper East Side schooling and the best universities. Then I was in this other world at the same time. Her circle widened, diversified. There were many black autistic boys in our circle, and it was so important to the mothers to teach them that when the police came, they had to keep their hands out of their pockets. The stakes felt frighteningly high. She took Max on dry runs to the police station, drilled him on how to behave if he was arrested. She began to feel greater compassion for the other parents she met, and more connected. In the months after the crash, Herfkins, who was then 31, bounced back fast. 
Within three months, she flew back to her office in Madrid. But the legacy of the crash, the losses and traumas, have shaped the decades since. She clutches a water bottle wherever she goes and still finds the taste of water better than anything else. When she flies, she tries always to sit in the front row because the sight of another seat back reminds her of the weight of the dead body that landed on top of her. Small moments of trauma, such as a friend ordering Vietnamese food, sometimes ambush her. Herfkins had specialised in developing markets, with a particular talent for the most imaginative debt-cancelling transactions, and it's clear that this specialism helped her in what she calls properly taking a loss. She applied this approach in the jungle, to Pasha, and then later in relation to three miscarriages, to Max's diagnosis, and her divorce from Looper, who died of cancer in 2021 on the anniversary of Van der Paz's death. But what does she mean exactly? It's really feeling it, really thoroughly taking it, she says. You learn from taking losses. It's painful, and you do it. In trading, many people hold on to their positions even while the losses increase, she says. Say you buy shares at £10 and their value drops to £6. On paper, you don't feel the loss, but if you sell, instead of £10, you only have £6, so it hurts. But then, you can use the money to buy new shares that will rise beyond the initial £10. You see, it takes an effort to actually accept the loss. It's much easier to pretend that it didn't happen. That's very human. It's the same with mourning. You cannot accept it if you don't feel it. Be aware of it, not just step over it. For Herfkins, survival is an ongoing process. These days, as well as writing her script and giving motivational speeches, she is a carer to Max. Mourning Pasha is an everyday thing, stitched into the fabric of daily life. She still uses his method to keep her t-shirts tidy, taking the whole pile out to take one out so they get less messy. Those little things, you know. She has internalised him, her loss of him, and that too is a form of connection. Each year she marks the anniversary of his death, now also the anniversary of her late ex-husband's death, and counts each day for the next eight days, each sip of water too. And then she buys herself a present. I like treating myself, she says. I'm good at that. That was... I was the sole survivor of a plane crash. This is what I learned in Eight Days Alone in the Jungle by Paula Kokosa. Read by Briny Rule. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles are read by Brandy Rule and Jeffrey Newland and presented by me, Savannah Ayode Greaves. This episode was produced by Jack Claremont. The executive producer was Ellie Bury. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. <laughs>